Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Dr. Simon. Uh, we are talking about the stories we live by. And I'm today going to um, discuss in some detail a rather interesting article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine section of May 10th by uh, a woman named Daphne Merkin, who uh, claims, and I don't question this at all, she's been depressed through most of her life. I want to discuss this article from a a number of points of view, and that listeners to the show uh, will find most of those points of view um, uh, familiar. But before I do, I wanted to do a little follow-up on last week's show, or two weeks ago, I did the show on David Myers, the little uh, seven-year-old boy who committed suicide. There was an interesting article follow-up to that uh, in the Miami Herald. Uh, They've been following this more than any other paper I'm aware of. And it turns out uh, (coughs) that when the David Myers story appeared in the paper, uh, a Mrs. Villamar uh, became uh, uh, alerted to this story because her son Emilio Villamar died at the age of 16 of a heart attack after being diagnosed bipolar disorder and being put on uh, simultaneously or alternately or both 16 different psychiatric drugs. Uh, she claimed her son was um, um, walked around like a zombie. Uh, I have no information as to what brought him to the psychiatrist in question, uh, what behaviors he was showing, although I'm going to speak in a moment about the myth of bipolar disorder, because like all psychiatric diagnoses, this is merely a bad name you call somebody, a label uh, for something, a behavior that is unwanted, and not understood well. But anyway, what alerted her and what uh, made her uh, start writing into the papers uh, was the fact that the same psychiatrist that she claims killed her son, uh, and she is suing him, uh, apparently the lawsuit has now been in the channels for four years, um, but the same psychiatrist, a Dr. Sohail Panjwani, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Panjwani, um, was the same doctor who uh, was attending David Myers and had him on such a huge cocktail of drugs as discussed last time before his suicide. So uh, I I wanted to talk a little bit about that because uh, the, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder is an outgrowth of a diagnosis uh, that used to be called um, uh, 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 I'm having a senior moment, excuse me, uh, manic depressive disorder. Now let me talk a little bit because it really relates to today's discussion on depression. When I was first introduced to psychiatric diagnosis as a student back in the 1960s, <clears throat> we were told that there were certain kinds of diagnoses that people lived with. They sort of covered them up. They, they had caused them misery, but they remained functioning. And those were used to be grouped under the term of neuroses. So neuroses were bothersome psychological problems that people struggled with anyway. And they hid them or they didn't hide them, 
but they could get on with their lives. Things like obsessive compulsive, what we call obsessive compulsive disorder, where you have uh, excessive washing or checking, anxiety problems. All of these things were listed under neuroses. Then there were the more serious conditions called the psychoses. Schizophrenia, which has long been the uh, sacred symbol of psychiatry, uh, they'll give way on a lot of these diagnoses, but never ever on uh, schizophrenia. Uh, that, that's, that's where they, their bread and butter lies, and that's where the, the drug companies, part of their bread and butter lies. And the other was manic depressive illness. Manic depressive illness was seen to occur in three different types. There was mania, which was uh, brought about by an excessive euphoria, uh, and seen as a defense against the dark depression, which dragged the person down. And I'll discuss the symptoms of depression through the article, A Journey Through Darkness. The second uh, uh, phase of this, or the second aspect, uh, was uh, depression itself. And the third was a variation of mania and depression, highs followed by lows, very often uh, as with all depression, depressive diagnoses, periods of, of uh, calm in between. Uh, as the lady says, Daphne Merkin, uh, most depressions work their way through within a year. Hers, of course, she sees as, and experiences as chronic. But what you'd have is these highs and lows. What was interesting is that I remember asking one of my clinical professors, uh, how come I've never seen one in the clinic and I don't know anybody who's ever seen one. And his response was, they're very rare. Mania you can see sometimes, but very often mania is attendant upon drug use, people who take certain kinds of drugs, stimulant drugs. But manic depressive tended to be rare. Uh, I woke up one morning now about, I guess, 10 years ago, eight years ago, and I found that uh, they were fooling now trying to merge diagnoses. And my own theory is, and I can't prove this, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that if you gave multiple diagnoses, and one of the ugliest words I've ever heard was SPMI, S-P-M-I, seriously, persistently mentally ill, the SPMIs that used to come into our clinic, people who were really caught in diagnostic categories, uh, and, and simply stayed chronic. They never functioned well. Uh, they became the mainstays of the clinic. Um, but when you started giving these multiple diagnoses, and for a short period of time, or not so short, schizoaffective disorder was one of the uh, diagnoses, what I call diagnoses du jour, diagnosis of the day. And what made this so popular is that you can now say this person was schizophrenic with serious depression. And schizophrenia with depression now required a cocktail of drugs. You had to have an antipsychotic drug uh, 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 like uh, Zyprexa or, uh, well, that was one of the newer ones, uh, Wellbutrin, um, uh, Haldol, Haldol for a long time, uh, which, by the way, works as well as any of the new ones. is much cheaper, but they don't use Haldol much anymore because they want to get the biggest bang for the buck. And so what we had now was uh, a person on Haldol, let's say, to deal with the psychotic symptoms 
and then something that would deal with, I, I should have said Welbutrin because that was an, an, a, an antidepressive drug. But you would have somebody on multiple drugs, some for the depression and some for the, for the, um, uh, for the uh, schizophrenia. And these diagnoses, new diagnoses, began to pop up all over the place. Absolutely pop up all over the place. Gee, let me hold on a second. I have somebody just as called in. Hello? 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 862-579. Yes, hi. Yes, hello. Hi. Uh, my name is Charity. Uh, I'm deaf. I'm calling through using an interpreter. Okay. So can I keep you online? I'll bring you back a little later. Uh, sure. Okay, I'll keep you there. And don't hang up, because you can join in the discussion after I finish this uh, some of my material, all right? Okay. All right. So, so um, what we have now uh, is an individual who's been multiply diagnosed. And all of a sudden, a few years ago, it became bipolar disorder, which really was an updating of the old manic depressive, although now they were arguing that bipolar was of a different origin than depression. So you had regular depression, which used to be the depressive phase of manic depression, cut away as a separate diagnosis from bipolar. What was remarkable is that bipolar now began to be diagnosed everywhere, and it required a lot of drugs. Uh, early on, when bipolar started to be uh, diagnosed, lithium, lithium salts were used to treat it, and lithium had certain problems. For the drug companies, it was cheap. Uh, they didn't, there was not much profit in it. But for the patient, they had to be monitored very, very closely because if their blood level was too low with lithium salts, it wouldn't have the necessary sedating effect. Uh, and if it was too high, it could cause serious medical problems to the patient. The next I heard is that they changed the, the uh the, the calming drug, the, the drug that smoothed out the highs and the lows with um, Depakate. Now, that, that is an anti-seizure drug. And anybody who knows anybody on epilepsy knows that that's a nasty drug. Although for an epileptic patient, if it stops or slows their seizures, the risks and the pain it creates are worth the benefit to them. And mm, unlike bipolar disorder, Epilepsy can be seen as usually from a focal lesion in the brain or some kind of neurological problem. It is a true and real medical condition, and hence the anti-seizure drug I treat as a true medical uh, solution to the problem. So what we now have are people, including little children. Now, one of my earlier shows, if anybody goes to it, is Who Killed Rebecca Riley? Rebecca Riley was diagnosed as bipolar disorder. And what were her symptoms? Rapid change of mood, temper tantrums, acting out. I mean, did anybody ever hear of the terrible twos? I had three children. I have six grandchildren. None of them at the age of two paid attention very well. Uh, their, their minds wandered to all kinds of things because that's how they're designed at the age of two. Uh, they get easily upset and easily, just as easily made happy. Well, this little girl apparently <clears throat> was now diagnosed as bipolar, and she was put on 
uh, all manner of drugs to calm her down and create an antidepressant. So a lot of the drugs that they give these little kids or anybody who is diagnosed as bipolar are going to be a mood stabilizer like an anti-seizure drug, clonopine, which is going to cut off the highs, and a, a, a Prozac or one of the SSRIs, the new drugs that are going to transform all of us and make all of us a happy camper, or as a colleague of mine say, a happy moron. And uh, this was given to this little girl. And her teacher saw her as a rag doll. I mean, she wouldn't function. After she died at the age of four uh, of these drugs, uh, her parents, it seemed, never could handle this kid. Uh, that was never factored in to her temper tantrums. And again, uh, I've many, talked to many parents, and I was one of them. When a kid throws a tantrum and you can't get them to stop, you want to put them in a sack with some bricks and drop them off a deep bridge into a, a body of water. But most of us don't do that because we love the child. These parents were now getting multiple prescriptions and giving it to the child, little Rebecca, and when she died, they were indicted for murder. Uh, I don't know what's happened to the case since then. So let me bring this back now uh, uh, to bipolar for poor Emilio Villamar. Uh, I know people, one of which is at Harvard, and in fact, I'm going to contact him. His name eludes me now. I haven't spoken to him in almost three years. Wonderful, wonderful guy, Harvard professor of psychiatry, who has suggested that one of the reasons there is so much bipolar now is that the mania is not a function of some underlying neurological, biochemical problem, but is brought about by the stimulant drugs that are being used to treat the depression. And he feels that most of that mania, that brand-new diagnosis, is the product of the so-called treatment of these individuals. And once now the individual becomes manic, they now begin to treat them with this whole big, powerful cocktail of drugs. And the result is an individual who I believe is genuinely at risk for serious medical problems. Uh, again, if you go into uh, my own series um, uh, and you go and look up the series, my interview with uh, Grace Jackson, who is one of the brightest medical psychiatrists I know, you can uh, listen to her interview about the tremendous dangers of these drugs. So, having made this long introduction, uh, uh, I don't believe that Daphne Merkin has an illness. She is sick at heart. Uh, it's clear, and I will not say anything to denigrate her pain, but I want to discuss Daphne through her article, uh, um, quote the article, and then I'll throw this open for the discussion from anybody who would really like to uh, come into this. First, it's called A Journey Through Darkness, and she writes... Four decades of psychotherapy, every type of psychotropic drug, three hospital stays, and the ever-present fear of returning to the psychological dungeon, a memoir of chronic depression. Well, it's clear from her, her own personal uh, experience, a vast experience, that whatever these drugs do, they really didn't help her very much, and the evidence is they don't help a lot of people very much. And again, I don't like to sound cynical, but I am cynical about this. What they help is the bottom line of the companies that produce these drugs and the large numbers of doctors who sell these drugs who are also on the payroll of the drug companies. And some of these doctors make large amounts of money. 
Fortunately, it's becoming a scandal, even within the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, and many of the doctors, psychiatric doctors, who feel uh, they'll never admit that depression isn't an illness, uh, which I will claim in a moment is a state of mind, and I want to discuss that state of mind as it emerges in Daphne's own story. But uh, it, it's an illness, but they're now talking about at least it's over, things are being over-prescribed, uh, that, that nobody should be on 16 drugs. Uh, and a six-year-old, and I don't believe anybody really young, uh, especially below nine or ten, should be given any kind of drug. Uh, and I will go on record as saying I believe that uh, uh, David Myers and Emilio Valimar were murdered, and not just by this doctor who overprescribed, because he's now in real trouble apparently, but by all of us in uh, not subscribing intelligently to an alternate view of the human condition and, and accepting the idea that when you're very, very sad, depressed, confused, you have an illness. By the way, I, I was thinking a lot about this. If depression is an illness, uh, if rage, self-hatred, and hopelessness, despair are illnesses, then uh, being happy must be health. And if these problems are brought about by biochemical, biochemical problems or genetic problems, basically biological uh, uh, anomalies, then health must not be due to the way we live, uh, those of us who feel happier and more fulfilled, uh, who love and feel loved, th this is not the case. It must be simply we have better brain chemistry. Now, what that does is wipe out the idea that there's a human being involved. And this brings me to uh, Daphne's story. Uh, on the alternate page, the, the opening page, she writes in very large letters, and there's a picture of her as a little baby must be two or so, looking out of her uh, preambulator, her little carriage, with a clear look of apprehension on her face. She writes, it's an affliction that often starts young and goes unheeded. An affliction. I don't doubt that subjectively, Daphne and many people who become seriously what we call depressed don't feel it came over them in the same way as catching a cold or the flu or some other illness. But I don't believe that. I believe it grows out of a psychological orientation, a way of seeing the world which is helped along by the, by the uh, environment in which the child is, is, is born into and raised. Right? Uh, she writes, and I'll get to all these threads as we go along. She writes, depression, the thick black paste of it, the muck of bleakness was nothing new to me. Uh, she's writing this from the point of view of her latest hospitalization, her third hospitalization. I had done battle with it in some way or another since childhood. It, it is an affliction that often starts young and goes unheeded, younger than would seem possible, as if exiting the womb I was enveloped in a gray and itchy wool blanket instead of the soft pastel-colored bunting. Perhaps I am overstating the case. I don't think it actually began as, a, I began as a melancholy baby. If I am to go by photos of me in which I seem impish with sparkly eyes and a full smile, all the same, who knows but that I was already adopting the mask of all rightness 
that every depressed person learns to wear in order to navigate the world. Right? Complicated issue here. Uh, people don't want to hear you're depressed. They say, buck up, feel better. And, of course, that is an insult to somebody who is suffering from the psychological problems that an individual has when they are that depressed. So I don't question the subjective experience of Daphne or anybody else who experiences very, very deep depression. But what's interesting to me is that as she speaks, it's not her psychologically this is happening to, but a kind of disembodied somebody. In other words, the self is not involved. And I believe that depression is created in response to a hostile environment. We go on. Uh, as an adult, I wondered incessantly, what would it be like to be someone with a brighter take on things? Someone possessed of the necessary uh, uh, illusions without which life is unbearable. Now, that's interesting. Studies have shown that people who uh, can have illusions that the world is better to them than it actually is. More people like them, they have more friends than they actually have, and this has been studied, have less depression. People who see the world as a hostile place, because it is a hostile place, are the ones who get more depressed. So isn't that interesting? The people who are able to go into a kind of a psychological denial and not see things or experience things deeply, um, uh, as I think Daphne does, are the ones who get most seriously depressed. And I think Daphne is one of these people. Like so many of the seriously so-called mentally ill I've worked with over the last 40 years, who really are artistic types. People have said often, madness and genius of creativity go hand in hand. And I think, and Daphne is a writer, by the way. And if I go by the writing in this article, she's a creative, effective writer. Writers tend to see the world as it is. Otherwise, there's nothing really to write about. Uh, if you can't, then you write Hallmark cards. And so much of the world is tragedy. When I was a little boy, I first heard from a rabbi of mine, life is a veil of tears. Nobody really wants to deal with that or admit it. But for much of the world, life is a veil of tears. And for many of us in our lives, at one point or another, there are many tears to be shed. There is not a lot of justice in the world. The strong eat the weak. The rich do pound down the poor. Uh, my wife is reading a book now about growing up in the poverty of India, and it boggles the mind how any of these children can grow up and survive. And what very often allows people to survive are the fantasies uh, of hope and the fantasies uh, of religion and the fantasies given to them by a variety of other sources in life. That God is watching, God loves them, they'll be saved. After they're dead, things will be better. Uh, and I'm not going to get into a discussion about whether or not there's an afterlife, but I can tell you from my own point of view that such things are illusions. I don't believe that these things actually exist uh, in literally. They're a wish. And the Daphnes of the world may, in fact, be born more sensitive to pain. That's a distinct possibility. If there is an individual difference in sensitivity to pain, and Daphne is the one of those people, then she really required a more nurturant environment 
than she describes she actually got. And so there is an underlying biological issue, I think, for all of us, but that's not an illness. That's simply the way our temperaments tend to be built. She writes, why are you? Why aren't you? I'm sorry. Someone who should get up in the morning uh, um, without being held captive by morose thoughts, doing their wild and wily gymnastics of despair as she measures out tablespoons of coffee from their snappy little aluminum bag. And then her voice says, you shouldn't. You should have. Why are you? Why aren't you? There's no hope. It's too late. It has already been too late. Give up. Go back to bed. There's no hope. There's so much to do. There's not enough to do. There is no hope. Beautifully written, but a very profound statement. Further on, she writes, but even as I talked and laughed with other guests, my thoughts were dark, scrambling ones, ruthless in their sniping insistence. You're a failure, a burden, useless, worse than useless, worthless. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment and talk about the psychological basis, I believe, of depression. Possibly there's a greater sensitivity to pain. Possibly there is. But we don't know that. I'll accept that perhaps there is. She does write that she never had a good relationship with her mother. And she doesn't really expand on that. But I think there was a problem. There is nobody I've ever met who ever called themselves worthless unless somebody told them they were. I believe that. And somebody would have to prove to me, which would be very difficult to do, that I'm a very stubborn guy and the evidence is that people make this up for themselves. This is the internalized voice of perhaps a mother or a father who was depressed themselves and who also now from one generation to the next has a feeling And this is the number one piece of depression, self-hatred, a belief that the defect is, is, is there in the self. Yes? Things that were told to patients over the years of people who were profoundly depressed that we found out later really were said, siblings, etc., friends who could verify that one woman was, quote, the abortion that failed. Quote, you should never have been born. Quote, my life could have been happy. My relationship with your father could have been a good one, except you were born and you destroyed everything for us. You are no good. I shit you out. I have a very good friend, a well-known analyst, whose mother told him that all the time. I shit you out. This becomes a core of the self, and here's something interesting. We tend to believe when we're very, very young what we're told. It's very hard to change the belief system of young children. Most of us never change our religion, never change our name, and many of us go through life believing the same kinds of stories and ideas told to us when we were very young. We're vulnerable to that. Number two, a feeling of helplessness. When a person feels helpless, powerless to alter their life. And children who are abused and subjected to abuse are powerless 
in the essential areas of their life. Three, hopelessness and despair. And finally, confusion and anxiety. And built into all of this is always a tremendous amount of terror and rage. Not just anger and fear, but a terror and rage. I will be abandoned. I am no good. I don't deserve love. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't believe depression causes these things. These attitudes and the emotions that go with it, self-hatred, profound helplessness, profound hopelessness, confusion, anxiety, rage, guilt, shame, which are all built into this odd depression. Not easy to change if it begins in childhood and works its way all the way through into adulthood. And what we are doing now to children and adults is saying to them, your existential reality is not one we want to deal with. It's false. It is merely the symptoms of an illness and affliction that happens to you, like my bad knees, like my arthritis. I can't prove anything I say, and I don't want to take somebody like Daphne Merkin and minimize her sadness and her depression. I don't. On the other hand, I've worked long enough with seriously depressed people and know so many other of my colleagues who've done the same, that if you can get impatiently to the system of beliefs, the belief of I am no good, I'm defective, stupid, ugly, I shouldn't have been born, everybody would be happy in the world if I wasn't here. I'm helpless, I can do nothing about it. The world is a hopeless, horrible, disgusting place. Right? If you can get into that system and begin to change the attitudes, the depression disappears. And I'm not going to go up the time to go through Daphne's story, but clearly she goes in and out of this depression. Something will happen. She has a daughter she loved, and there's a connection that is made there that apparently has a powerful effect on what happens to her mood subsequently. Now, is this all theory? Yes, it is. On the other hand, Daphne writes, she gobbled down her usual medley of, of pills, Lamictal, Respidol, Welbutrin, Lexapro, and even more, an MSAM patch. I have not been free of psychotropic medication for any substantial period since my early 20s. But this was not a passing episode. I mean, this is a woman now who has accepted the idea she is defective neurologically. There's nothing she can do to change the condition. And once that happens, you now have a self-fulfilling prophecy. In fact, I've got to do a show just on self-fulfilling prophecies that becomes extremely difficult to change. How can you say to Daphne, you're not worthless, when somehow through her childhood she's experienced herself as worthless? And how can you say to her, you're not damaged and you're not worthless, you're deserving of respect, when you say to her, you have a defect, a genetic biochemical brain defect, and the best you can do is go in and out of hospitals and take all kinds of drugs, some of which seem to be, Respidol is not even for depression, it's an antipsychotic drug. These doctors now are giving drugs in desperation, and I believe to make profit. So, uh, I have two people online.
Uh, I will open the mics, and anybody who would like to join in the remaining 13 minutes, I would love to do that. Anybody else wants to call in who might be out there, that will be my pleasure. Hello? Hello? Barry? Yeah, Larry. Yes. I um I I have uh, one thing I would like to ask you about and that is uh she makes a statement that says um I may have hated my life but I valued my memories even yes. the unhappy ones. Yes. Can you address that? Why why is that? Why do we well, feel that way? It's simple because that's her. We are our memories. You know the most terrifying of all illnesses right now is Alzheimer's. Whereas your memory goes, you go. Or the, what you are psychologically goes. The I, you know, I, I am going to dinner to celebrate my birthday tonight, right? It's the same yeah, thing. I, I have a brain. That, that's one of my favorite sentences. I have a brain. I'm not my brain. Without my brain, I wouldn't be me. But I am more than my brain on a psychological, social level. So she values her memories because that's who she is. The ultimate despair. I believe if she didn't value her memories, she would kill herself. I think she'd be dead. That would be the end of it. Now, I don't know if I'm explaining that well enough, but I think that's what my answer to that would be. You have a thought? Would you say, would you say that a memory is almost uh, another word for soul? Yes. And I use the word soul, but if you listen to me, you know I don't really believe in the souls that escape the body and go elsewhere after we die. I think when we die, that's right. it. I use the word soul all the time and believe that people's souls should be respected. And to me, a soul is that inner part of ourselves that we will protect at all costs. It's that which is in each of us that is precious. And it's that which is automatically respected if we're genuinely loved. Um, I once, many years ago, read a wonderful article in The American Psychologist about a woman who said, when you call me a schizophrenic and convince me I'm a schizophrenic, you're committing soul murder. And when you hear a parent say to a child, I shit you out, you're no good, you shouldn't have been born, you're the abortion that failed, or one of my favorite co uh, patients, I almost called him a colleague, I worked with him several years, a wonderful little boy, who was the biggest pain in the ass to his teachers that you could ever imagine. And when I asked him about the drugs he was taking, he said, handcuffs in a bottle, handcuffs in a bottle. And then as we began to explore, isn't that great, by the way? Because yeah, that's what they great, are, they're handcuffs. And by the way, his teachers were not unhappy that he was in handcuffs. Right. Now, since you couldn't put him in actual handcuffs, because the law wouldn't allow that, call him uh, uh, mentally deranged, mentally disordered, set him down with these drugs, and the teacher is much happier, and I don't blame her. Because this kid was murder. But when we explored his family background, he had a father who was very ill with diabetes, a man in a rage all his own life, who used to chase his two sons around the house with a big stick, screaming at them, when I get you, you useless bags of shit, I'm going to beat you to death. And the boys would run up and spend the hours on the roof hiding until he would get over his rage. And I asked this little boy, I said to him, if your father got you, what do you think would happen? Oh, he said, I'd be dead or I'd be seriously hurt. He would really lay that stick on us. 
Uh, I asked the mother finally. And by the way, the story has a nice resolution. I said to the mother, everybody complains about your son in school. I know how a happy, loved child behaves. Uh, how does a useless bag of shit behave? Children take these things literally. Mm-hmm. He's a useless bag of shit. Well, the mother, I finally got the mother into therapy with me and the kid. Uh, I really had a fight for this because in the clinic, the medical thing is that the patient is the one diagnosed. No, this family is the one that needed help. The father would never come because, quote, he didn't believe in therapy. <laughs> Fathers, by the way, most of the time, if they're the problem, don't believe in therapy. They don't want to deal with the issue. They themselves have been raised as men never to look at their emotions or never to take responsibility for what they're doing. And so uh, she finally began to really protect this kid. And as she protected him against the father and finally threw the father out, she said, I cannot accept you attacking the boys this way. You either have to stop or you have to leave. And he left. He was miserable and unhappy. But boy, did the boys both, there was another boy a little older uh, who was less trouble uh, than, than the, one, the kid I worked with. Um, and the, the behavior, the bad behavior resolved itself. By the time these kids left me, the, the little boy left me and the mother, they had a nice relationship. He was no longer acting out in school, and nobody was even dreaming of drugging him. I wish they all ended that way, uh, Barry. Mm-hmm. Hello. I'm here. Yeah. The, the 862-579-2935, any comments? Interesting. You told me you were a deaf person and you have a translator. Is there anything you want to say? Hi, I'm here. Yes. Hello? Yes, yes, I have a question. Go ahead. I'm... Uh, I have a boy um, who's very sweet, but I've noticed that he's very moody, and his mood is not stabilized. I'm chatting with him, and it's very fun to chat with him, and then all of a sudden he changes mood and stops talking to me, and later on he will speak with me again. Um, So? So what's the, what's the difficulty so, you're trying to understand that? Um, he got some. Um, he got some shots um, in uh, both of his legs, and um, I think that definitely affected his mood. What do you mean shots? Let me just clarify with a caller. I'm sorry. When I meant shot, someone just shot him in in his leg last year. Yes. Yeah, he was shot in his leg, and I think that's definitely affected him, affected his mood. How could it not? In other words, somebody shot him, he could have died. He was assaulted, right? By the way, nobody who's who's ever been shot is ever the same after that. By the way, no one who's ever been raped is ever the same after that. Nobody whose house is broken into is ever the same. Why? How can you see the world the same way after that kind of experience? Now, we then say, well, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Give them a pill. They'll get over it. Nonsense. 
When you've been shot, the world cannot be the same place you lived in before you were there. Does that make any sense? Hello? Yes, it makes it total make sense. sense. Huh? But um, you know, I'm trying to be friendly with my uh, with my friend, so? but uh, he's being very uh, inappropriate. Yeah, he can yeah, curse. he's having trouble. And he yeah, he's having him? a lot of trouble. I think he's yes. he doesn't want to speak with anyone. He prefers to be alone. You know, I try to kind of encourage him and chat yes. with him. But he is—he's um, not willing to to be to be chatty or um, so speak with me. I'm trying, you know. I understand you. I understand you. I understand. Hi, hi. What's your name, by the way? What's your name? Hello. My name is Chrissy. Yes, Chrissy. yes, I'm here. I'm I'm, Chrissy, I'm just I, interpreting. I, Chrissy, I understand your frustration, but why should he live up to your expectations? Why should he? Why can't he be moody? It may not be good for him to be moody, but after his trauma, after the terrible thing that happened to him, maybe what we have to do with him is just stand by him and wait for him to work this out and, and, and retell the story. Because, you see, he has to now construct a new story by which he lives. I don't know who shot him. Maybe he feels deeply ashamed. Maybe he, brought it, he feels he brought it on himself. I mean, people do all kinds of interpretations about... Uh, uh, I'm trying to close my... Ah, okay, good. I'm back to the... the, to the, uh, to the yeah. People do all kinds of things like that and end up in all kinds of psychological places in which the story that they used to live by doesn't work for them anymore. They have to reconstruct themselves. They have to have. A, they need a new character, and I think if you care for somebody, you you stay with them as long as you can possibly do it, and and be his friend. That that would be what I would think is most going to help him. And if you give him time, he may very well work this way through. But again, I don't know anything about his background. I don't know where his sensitivities are. I don't know what else is happening. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Yes. I'm trying to be patient. You know, I'm not uh, forcing him to speak about anything, especially yes. not about the incident that happened. Right. I'm trying to kind of deviate from that subject and talk about a lot of other things. Right. But, but don't put a pressure um, on him. You know. When he's ready, if he gets ready and when he's ready, he will come to you and talk about it. Okay. So I only have two minutes. Okay, two minutes. thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Call again. Yeah, Barry, how are you? Good, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going to wrap this up in two minutes. I don't know how many other people were on. Uh, this was good. I like it. As long as there are other people on, it really makes a, a big difference. It because does. sometimes uh, when I finish the show... Uh, it turns out there's almost always somebody been there at least some of the time. But sometimes I feel like, hey, I'm talking to myself, and that's not particularly great. <laughs> they put you away for talking to yourself. Yeah, uh, they do. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I'm going to close this down. Um, I'll call you when I hang up, Barry. All right. And uh, I have about 15 minutes because uh, my wife and I are going to go out to celebrate my birthday. Oh, great, great. Well, we...
the, I will represent the entire audience and wish you a happy birthday. Thank you so much. And, uh, and I'll talk to you in a little while. And right, for everybody bye-bye. else who uh, is listening now and didn't call, please do call uh, uh, next time. And for anybody else who will hear this in the future, I thank you for uh, attending, and I hope this was of value for somebody. And certainly I do not mean to say anything to upset Daphne Merkin, uh, but this is my opinion based on many years of experience, that it's, the depression is not a thing that causes self-hatred, helplessness, hopelessness, uh, black moods, a wish to die. Uh, it is those things are the depression. Those things are the depression. Take care and goodbye.
Hello? Hello? Now, this is just feedback from his 